Hello, everyone. It's Thursday. You know what that means? Another edition of the MSP Initiative Live. We bring back legal superstar. That's right. I just yeah. keep on moving them up the ladder every time. Mr. Yeah. Brad Gross, to superhero, the- superstar. So yeah, works. yeah. We're gonna get you. We're gonna get you, Cape man. We're gonna get you, Cape, and we're gonna put you in like the next superhero kind of conglomerate conglomeration movie, right? Like it all. I like it. it. I like it. I mean, yeah, can't can't go wrong. So, so of course, Brad's working from home today. Apparently, it's very rainy, and uh, in in what usually is sunny Florida. But yes. uh, hey, listen, you know you can't have it the good weather all the time. It's not usually sunny in the summertime in Florida, so that's the dirty little secret that it rains every day in the summertime in Florida. But that's what keeps it green, right? So yeah, yeah. Uh, what is uh, what is you know like zoom out right now, right? Did you hear about the acquisition of Scout by Barracuda? That just no, came out an hour ago. Actually, I did not hear about that. When did that come out? Like an hour ago? An hour ago. Yeah. <laughs> no, I had not heard about that. But you know what? You know, as we come out of the whole coronavirus pandemic thing and so forth, uh, you're going to see a lot of MA, uh, quite a bit, because now things are picking up. The economy is obviously doing well. And uh, it, it doesn't surprise me to hear about this. But no, I had not heard about it. When yeah, was this released? What is this? Breaking news? Are you like CNN? Is that what Almost you're Almost breaking news. I got to give some cred to my pal uh, or everybody's favorite uh, you know, news outlet, Mr. Uh, Joey P, Joe Panitari. So, uh, yeah, he put, uh, yes, of course. Put he put it out there this morning, uh, actually not even an hour ago. And he gets like, that oh. stuff long before anybody gets that stuff. Yes. He's yeah. Amazing. Like, he's amazing. He's, he's already queuing it up, right? So. <laughs> he's already written six articles about it. I know. It's all yeah, good. Exactly. <laughs> That's what he does. So, so, yeah, I think the M&A is going to start picking up. And there's no question that uh, Keith Nelson says, is the rain what keeps Florida man alive? Yes, no, I think Flor- I don't. I think Florida man is going to happen no matter what. But <laughs> <laughs> ah, that's probably true. That's yeah. probably true. It's funny because I don't even know if you could pick it up on the microphone. But as we're talking, there were like two or three loud claps of thunder, and all I'm thinking is, I wonder if people are hearing that. And then, of course, shortly followed by, I wonder how long it'll be before the lights flicker, and then we have to reboot the computer. But we'll see. Wow. We'll see. Let's hope should be okay. Right. Should be all right. So. Last time we had you on, which really wasn't that long ago, but you are very oh. popular. We keep on bringing you back. Um, last time we had you on, we talked about, man, we could have a whole session on just the legalities around cryptocurrency, ransomware, like that whole yeah. industry has so many kind of cat, you know, caveats to it. Um, let's, let's just go, let's just start, you know, with an obvious one and, and we'll see where, you know, we end up. So, so Mr. Musk, right? Mr. Tesla extraordinaire himself, you know, he, he kind of made the waves not too long ago when he said, Hey, Tesla's putting, you know, a billion dollars in the, into Bitcoin and we're going to start accepting payments via Bitcoin. This isn't new, right? I mean, vendors were accepting Bitcoin for payment for a while, mm-hmm. even some of the tech vendors, right? Like Dell, sure. whatever. Um, what's your opinion on receiving payment via Bitcoin, like you take, do you take big book Bitcoin for your service? No, no. And I'll tell you this. I was watching, um, uh, what is it? Bill Maher, the, a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, and, and he had a great line and, and I heard it and I thought, 
He's exactly right. And he said something to the effect of, he said, you know, about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. He said, I've had three industry experts explain it to me. I still don't understand it. And either do you. <laughs> Just like, and I'm thinking, you know what? He's probably not far off. You could have the best industry in this, uh, experts explain to you. You still don't quite understand what it's based on and so on. I mean, it's essentially cryptocurrency is, is a bunch of numbers that no one else can guess. That's the value of it, right? By the bottom line. And, uh, you know, as far as acceptance, I still don't understand bluntly. I mean, I understand what it is, but I don't understand the value of it. I don't, I cannot personally accept uh, something that whose fluctuation is all over the map, right? I mean, one day it's valuable, one day it's not, one day it's up, one day it's down. The whole thing could disappear overnight. It's not really backed by anything other than a lot of other people that believe that you can't guess the numbers, uh, you know, upon which these, these currencies are based. So I think that from a business perspective, U.S. perspective, it's going to be a very, very long and slow road before you see ubiquity in, in its acceptance. Um, it doesn't surprise me, though, that it is the uh, currency of choice for cyber criminals because, you know, it's so easily um, uh, um, transported, obviously exchanged and so on. Though we did see, and I think we talked about this in our last session, that its anonymity is no longer guaranteed, right? The FBI was actually able to, right. The FBI was actually able to track the cyber currency that was given and pull it back, or at least a couple of million, right? Yeah. It's not everything, but it was not, you know, they, they took some back and you said, how do do they do that? Well, they have ways of doing it, but nonetheless, it's still going to remain the, the currency of choice, I think for a while. As far as cyber criminals are concerned, I I think there's a, I forget what country in in South America has changed their national currency to Bitcoin. Really? Yeah. Yeah. It's recently. Uh, See how that works out for them. Yeah, I I, am. I I know. And then the other thing that that's interesting about it is from a, and I, Hey, you're not a financial advisor or anything, but like the the IRS says that there, you have to claim Bitcoin as property, right? Like Mm -hmm. you have to actually list that at whatever the value, I think they post the value at the, on on the tax, when the tax season comes up, right. You have to actually show it as if you were moving stock trades, right. You know, kind of thing. Yeah. Like I said, I, I think as far as crypto is concerned, it is going to be, you know, it's it's fashionable. It's easy. You could get a couple apps. You could trade in it very easily. Um, you, there are so many different varieties that you can buy cryptocurrency for as few as literally a few pennies, all the way up to 50 grand per coin. So I think that, you know, it's having its um, moment in the sun right now. We'll see if it has... Uh, We'll see if it has has value. And I like that comment about taking it for it's like accepting Eagle tickets, no value. <laughs> well, I'm a Jet there, fan, so, you know, I'm not going to make fun of George. So. There's definite value, I promise you there, uh, Keith. But he does also say he takes fine cigars and single malt scotch for payment. So, yeah, I think so there's that you pick your pick your uh, pick your currency. Right. So. Right. So what so it's interesting, right? The, you, you bring up again, the anonymity might not be as locked down as you thought. Right. Um, and the other concern is that uh, about what was it six months ago? Not more than that. Uh, they came out and said that it may be illegal to pay the ransom. 
Yeah. So there's two sides to that, right? On yeah. one side, they said it may be illegal. I don't know, Department of Treasury, something like that. Mm-hmm. On the other side, they said, oh, but you can write it off as a business expense. Well, so you deal <laughs> with so you're dealing with two different government agencies and having worked for the government for a while early in my career as a prosecutor in New York and Florida, I could tell you that Florida agency, Florida state and federal agencies don't communicate with each other. And even at the same level, federal intra agency, right? Federal to federal states, they don't communicate with each other very often either. So it wouldn't surprise me that uh, the IRS might take a particular position that almost encourages one thing, and then the um, uh, the Department of Treasury uh, takes an entirely different position. But you know, the thing that you're talking about about how they said uh, don't don't pay ransomware. You know, if you do, you might have an issue. Really emanates from a a um, a memo that was released back. Now we're talking about a year and a half ago from the U.S. Treasury Department, in which it said. You know, and, and, and it said, listen, you might be if you pay these this ransom, you might be giving money to terrorists. You might be giving money to especially uh, designated people who you're not allowed to, to to pay. And that could violate the law, which brings us back to the whole thing. If you want to get into it about, you know, what is you know, how does this impact us and what is the U.S. Treasury Department and why should we care about them? I mean, we could jump into that if you'd like. I, I mean, listen, I don't think any, I mean, I don't want to speak out of turn here. You probably would be the person somebody would call if they ran into a problem in this genre, not me. Mm. But like, I've never talked to an MSP that said, oh yeah, the FBI knocked on my door because of this, you know, this crypto transfer that happened. And right. all of a sudden, like, you know, hell broke loose and they need yeah. to go to court, right? Like, right. I just haven't heard that. I mean, theoretically, I assume it can happen, but if their customers down... I guess it's, you know, number one, it's, we're going to get into this part in a second, right? It's a mm-hmm. really uncomfortable situation, right? And right. whether the MSP would pay out of their pocket or the customer would pay out of their pocket, if there's a chance to get the data back, they may just pay it because that may be the only option they have. And that's a bad scenario, but, right, you know, that may be the situation. So, so let's, you're 100% right. So let's let's back up a bit, okay? Because people who are listening might be saying, well, wait, is it illegal? Is it legal? And who's going to enforce it? And so on. What we're talking about, and you touched on it earlier, is the U.S. Treasury Department, all right? The U.S. Treasury Department set up a division within itself. It's called the Office of Foreign Asset Control, or OFAC. And everyone hears about the OFAC and the OFAC list. They don't quite understand it. What the OFAC uh, division does is it enforces um, economic and trade sanctions, okay, against people companies, countries, and so forth that they designate to be terrorists or, um, you know, against the, the United States national interest and so on. And they've come up with what we call the OFAC sanction list. That's the list, the list that has all the people in the companies that are owned by terrorists, or alternatively, these are people that um, are supported by governments that we consider to be enemies or threats to our country, like Iran, like North Korea, uh, 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 um, Syria, Cuba, Venezuela is on there. So the idea is there's this list. And what they say is, you know, the people who are on that list, which also, by the way, includes some cyber criminals who have in the past uh, distributed ransomware, the people who are on that list, uh, 
you are not as a U.S. citizen or a U.S. company or U.S. bank, right? You are not allowed to deal with these people. And if you do, okay, then you could be um, in violation of the Trading with the Enemy Act. There's actually an act out there. There's actually a law called the Trading with the Enemy Act. It came out back in World War I, and it was largely used to um, uh, stop people from dealing, obviously, with the, with the enemy. But now it has been used to enforce the OFAC list. All right. So now, why does this impact anybody? who's listening to this, why? All right, the idea is, is that if you have ransomware and somebody says, I want 10 Bitcoin, the question is with whom or to whom are you sending that Bitcoin? Are you sending it to you know, uh, uh, Michael in France or are you sending it to some guy in North Korea? And the difference is, is that if you're sending it to someone in France while you're not violating the sanctions, the OFAC list, if you're sending it to North Korea, you are. And if you do that, then as per the Treasury Department back in 2020, when they talked about it, what you would be doing is you'd be violating the law, federal law. And if you violate federal law, there are civil penalties or criminal penalties. I mean, you could get up to a million dollars in penalties and, and, and uh, uh, I think it was two years in jail, I think, if uh, two or three years in jail. So everyone says, oh boy, you know, I don't want to violate law but you just hit the, the, the crucial issue, which, which is if you're crypto locked, okay, and you don't know where the person is coming from, then what do you do? What do you do, right? Do you send the money and then potentially violate the law? Of course, you don't know where this person is, or do you not send the money and just wrap it up and you know go into your brother-in-law's jewelry business because you're out of business, <laughs> you know, find another business and, and that's it. It's a question that's very vexing, and a lot of MSPs are faced with that, especially as you know, ransomware is up 500% in the past two years. So this is a, a serious issue that we need to think about. Okay, so because this scenario is unfortunately pretty common, not maybe mm-hmm. not the government knocking on your door yet, right. although it's, it's clearly very possible, right. more the what like that scenario right the i'm in the boat where i almost like i have no other choice other than to try uh, that's obviously where nobody wants to be and obviously we've heard a lot of people talk forever about hey here's everything you should do not to be in this position so that you don't have to make that decision but it happens brad and right ultimately at the end of the day the person behind the keyboard is still the worst you know offender right to open up the door right so as an msp when ransomware comes in it almost never ends well brad i mean there always is very heated conversations and angry people on both sides of the table yeah and probably a not good outcome (laughs) you know at the very least you may have lost customer right at the at the worst now that they're trying to drag you into court saying that it was your fault that, you know, you you didn't put the pop proper protections in place to prevent such a thing. Right. right. So, I mean, the, and then, you know, we don't have to go too far. Right. I know the Keystone Pipeline thing is like very publicly facing and obvious, but right. they said, you know, what they said very not very long after they said, well, we found the root cause of how that happened. It was an, an employee that left who was using the same password everywhere. His personal account probably got compromised. He was using the same account for his work account. Nobody shut off his work account. And here we go. 
So it was a comedy of it was a comedy of errors, right? And this is the stuff that I teach when I teach this to to LLM students, cyber uh, uh, corporate cybersecurity practices. You know, at least two or three of the things that you just rattled off are the things that you always that you insist the companies do, right? Which is um, have proper proper credentials, make sure that outdated information is deleted, make sure that employees are forced to change their passwords, make sure that outgoing employees no longer have access to, I mean, all these things that you're rattling off were, were implicated in, in, in that particular incident. And yeah, hundred. you're entirely right. Most of the time, I don't have the exact number. I'm sure somebody does, but most of the time, um, these incidents can be absolutely avoided if you just had employee training and proper cybersecurity policies in, in place and an incident response plan, which we could talk about, but they don't, I mean, they just don't, I, I still don't understand why. Maybe it's a cost benefit analysis. Maybe they figure the cost of doing it is not worth the risk of what might happen and what they have to pay out. Um, though I would tend to argue that it's a flawed analysis because more and more insurance companies are not covering this or, if they cover it, they require certain hoops to jump through, uh, and you have to make sure you do that. Uh, and, and you know, ignoring it is just simply not the way to go. So, so Keith actually uh, <laughs> continues to actually. Darren posted a pretty good link on uh, on some things to think about when it comes to ransomware payments. But Keith pops and he says this comment may be harsh, but if you're an MSP and lack the technical and leadership capacity to prevent ransomware, mitigation is well beyond your capacity. I strongly suggest you bring in professionals to negotiate the ransomware payment, if applicable, as well as forensics mitigation recovery. I mean, Keith, not, not wrong, but if there's an insurance policy in place, you almost have to start with the insurance yeah. company, right? Because yeah. if you start to do things and then you call them after the fact, you may have blown your capability to file the claim. No doubt. And I'll tell you, I, I agree with I agree with 75 percent of what Keith just wrote. So I agree with the part where he said, I strongly suggest you bring professionals to negotiate ransomware payment. Absolutely. As well as forensics mitigation recovery. 100 percent right. You. But Keith also wrote. If you as an MSP lack the technology and leadership capacity to prevent it, then that if then is where I'm going to have a little bit of an issue. But here's why. I think that as an MSP, especially if they are listening to this, then that means they're an educated MSP. They probably know what they're doing. They have resources and solutions that they um, know how to implement. And those resources and solutions would most of the time prevent a ransomware incident. That said, that said, your clients don't want it. See, that's the thing. And I actually did a podcast on this a while ago, a while back, where your clients are, the, are their own worst enemies, because you might have the technology and leadership capacity to prevent it, but implementation is up to your customer. And if the customer doesn't allow you to implement it, then you're sort of out of luck. And, you know, you could be the smartest guy on the block, but if they don't want to hear the lecture, then, you know, the knowledge doesn't, doesn't get imparted, um, which especially in this area, especially in this area, um, it, it, it sort of sets us up for the discussion of a declination notice, right? That your customer is declining these types of things that you're, you have the technology, you have the leadership, as I see he wrote here, but the customer's declining it. The customer has to know that. 
so, so by the way, by the way, Brad, and, and yeah. I know we brought this up before, but since we're in it, let's just touch on it. Yeah. How 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 helpful is the waiver in this situation? I mean, if you like, sign here, I offered this to you. You said no. Does that going to help you? Is that some sort of shield? So it, it would be a shield, but it doesn't manage expectations. And what I mean by that is um, it would prevent if it's written correctly, if the, if it's written correctly, it would prevent a lot of the legal problems that you might have a lot of the legal costs that would prevent you from uh, having a loss in, in court or in, before an arbitrator. That said, you know, what's to stop the client from saying, well, you didn't explain it to me. Right. I waived it. But you know what? I called you in as an expert. You are an expert. And don't tell me that just because I signed this paper that you actually explained the risk. Don't tell me that just because I signed this paper, you told me everything that was going to happen. And now you're stuck in a, a sort of purgatory where eventually you would win the case because you have a waiver. So legally, you're sort of set in that way. But in order to get to that point, you are forced to engage with attorneys, forced to engage with this customer and explain why you did explain it properly. So I think that... Um, I think that a declination letter or a waiver can't just simply be, I recommended uh, this particular solution. It's intended to prevent whatever, ransomware, malware, and so on. You've declined, sign here. I think that while, again, legally that might help you, if you really want to give yourself a, um, put yourself in the best position, what you're going to want to do is you're going to want to present a letter or a waiver that is educational. And education, and it'll serve two purposes. One, it will protect you because it will lay out not only what the threat is, but what the potential ramifications are if the threat is not eliminated. It also gives you a second bite at the marketing apple, right? A second bite at the apple. So, and and I always, uh, the, the, the example I always give when I'm on stage and talking about this, you know, you call someone on on the audience and you say, you ever order delivery? Like take, you know, have food delivered. Yeah. And you ever have it where the, uh, the restaurant tax on a service charge of like six bucks, seven bucks, so on. Yeah. And don't you hate that? And and then you think, oh, you know what the heck with this? I'm going to go pick it up. I'm going to go pick up this food because I don't want to pay six bucks. I can afford six bucks, but it's the principle. I don't want to pay six bucks. I'm going to go pick it up. Okay. What if that restaurant said, all right, you're going to pick it up. Here's the thing. Before you come over, let me just tell you a few things. One, it is raining out and I know it's flooded between us and you. So just drive carefully. Also, the lights, the traffic lights aren't working. You might hit some traffic. And then when you get here, our parking lot is actually flooded. You have to park next door at the Home Depot, then walk, get the food, and then, you know, it's here. But okay, it's no problem. You'll, you'll pick it up when? Now, at some point, you're going to sit back and say, you've rattled off so many parades of horrible things, right? That six bucks doesn't seem so bad anymore. Right? For six bucks, I don't have to do any of that, right? So the idea is a declination letter works the same way. A waiver, if you will, works the same way. Presented in a way that presents the parade of horrible things that will happen if they continue along this path. And I guess from my perspective, and I've seen it over and over again, you will have a second bite at selling that service. 
Yeah. Okay. Because they're going to say it's such a bad thing. I don't want to drive in the rain. I don't want to get caught a red light. I don't want to have to walk through water to get to this thing. And then when I get home, the food's cold anyway. Same deal, right? That's what everyone listening to has to think about when they're writing one of these waivers. And I would suggest that you not write it yourself. You have counsel write that stuff. And we can talk about the an offer at the end of this uh, webinar about what we can do for you. But um, uh, no, that's, so what, that's what's needed. So Keith actually gets kind of verbose in his response here, uh, Brad. He said, mm -hmm. Mr. Gross, by the way, you know, it's very, very nice there. Clients do not want to, to means you're selling commodities versus business prospect alignment services. Mm -hmm. This is the very reason we refuse to say that we are a MSP. We okay. security to longshore dispatch. Um, yes, there is resistance. However, security is culture and must be integrated into business process enhancement or re-engineering. I think anything less is unscrupulous advantage, which in CA courts to which in CA courts to accept. I guess I don't understand that last piece. Then he says, mm -hmm. further. Uh, SB did not want to implement prudent policies. Now they thank me after a terrorist attack. They're functioning within 24 hours while the FBI had their building on lockdown. That's another one we're going to talk about in a second. Right. Yes, it was a fight, but willingness to push back my chair so not to have to contract made. Okay, so his whole point is, mm -hmm. hey, you know, like you have an option, right? You could say, I walk away, right? If you're not going right. to do this, I'm just not. I'm not going to work with you. Right. But right. I would argue a lot of people hesitate there because everybody wants to make money, right. Doing right. what they do. The other option is a difference in positioning, right. So that they yeah. perceive things differently than you being the MSP, which changes the, you know, the, the dialogue in such a way that you can get it across. You know, obviously there's a human being element to this for sure. sure. Um, so let's, let's talk about the first thing. How, Brad, you know, you've been in business for a long time. You've consulted with a lot of technology firms in a long time. Is it, are you hearing now more than ever that they're just going to, hey, if you're not going to do it the right way, I'm just going to walk away. Are you hearing this? No, MSPs simply don't walk away. And that's the problem. So what, you know, what he just pointed out was a really interesting um, perspective. And I think his perspective is the correct one that, uh, clients view this, any client who views it as a commodity, well, you're probably better pushing back your chair and saying, I'm done. Wow. And now I made the whole camera shake when I did that. Uh, you push back the chair and say, I can't help you. Right. Because what happens is you will often walk in as an MSP and, and you'll have the right solution. Right. You'll have the right solution. I mean, you'll say, listen, we have to um, identify connections between the IT and the OT network. We have to uh, implement MFA and use secure uh, credentials and VPNs. And you could go on and on. All the client hears is wah, 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 wah. And then they're listening for how much? How much is this going to cost me? OK. And unfortunately, that's how clients, a lot of the customers of MSPs, you know, hear it. And they say, well, you know, you're going to identify these connections and so on and so forth. So is Tom. So is Joe from another MSP. How much is this going to cost me? And it often comes down to a, a, a uh, commoditized type argument, which is where clients reject and, and, and ultimately, you know, reject things. So I agree that when a client says, no, thank you, you know, I don't want this crucial thing that can protect me from a ransomware or any malware attack, which we know, I mean, pick up the paper, this is the biggest thing. If a client is saying no to that, 
It might very well be that the MSP has presented it in a way that it looks like a commodity and not a valued service. And so I agree with that. I think that if you present it as a commodity, it's a race to the bottom. It's a race to the bottom, right? It's a race to the bottom because now it's, well, you're going to give me this, but Tom MSP can give it to me for $4 cheaper workstation. Now what? Um, or, Or it's not in the budget or I'd prefer not to spend the money on it. I'm done. I think MSPs should take a much stronger stance. Um, so I agree. I agree with, uh, who was it, Keith, who said that? So it's a good point, Keith. And I, and I as far as your second point, where you said that uh, uh, they didn't want you to implement prudent policies, now they thank you because after a terrorist attack, they were functioning within 24 hours, FBI still had the building on lockdown. Yeah, yeah, that's a great case study. I would put that case study at front and center at your website and direct people to it whenever... Um, uh, whenever they question w- whether your services are worthwhile or not, because what you just said is exactly the value you bring to the table. Which br- brings Keep us doing it. I mean, you know, which, br- which brings us onto that topic for a second. Yeah. What happens when a police department or government law enforcement agency right. basically sequesters your stuff? Like they can, like I, I ran, I, I ran into you know a situation where. You know, the, the cops like, oh, yeah, I need that security footage. Yeah, I'm taking your whole camera system. You yeah. got to hold it as evidence. You know, go get another one. Like, that's not cheap. How, how no, do you it's even, not. You even have an, a recourse here, Brad, or can they hold it indefinitely? Well, unfortunately, when the state or the government steps in, they step in and they do what they have to do. Um, sometimes it's voluntary, sometimes, meaning you participate voluntarily, sometimes not. Depends on the interests at hand. If it's purely a private interest, meaning your company is going to suffer or not, you can usually tell law enforcement, we're not willing to play ball right now because we're trying to resolve this internally. If it went down to a more of a U.S. interest, like a bank, or well, the government might step in and say, listen, pursuant to FDIC or whatever regulatory compliance you have to work within, uh, we're taking over. So give us your stuff. And then that's a problem. Yeah, it's definitely. And and these are the exactly the reasons why you want to make sure that the policies are in place and and the, and, and, and you're not you haven't been commoditized out of existence uh, and clients have to understand this. Um, I know we talked about this for a while back, but I'm going to bring it up now because I feel like it's timely. Um, a lot of the pushback against cloud services is the customer feels they don't have control to prevent law enforcement from actually gaining access to your stuff without you knowing, right? Somebody mm-hmm. puts a request into Microsoft or Google or Amazon. Uh, they're not really going to fight back, right? I mean, if it's a lawful request, I guess they're just going to say, okay, you would think they would ask the question, well, this is a really wide request. You need to narrow, but right. There's nothing forcing them to do that, right? Well, pursuant to the the applicable law, again, it depends on what the, the, um, it depends on what is being investigated and whether they, you know, got gag orders and so on. I mean, we could really get into the nitty gritty of it. Generally speaking, when a third party's information is being subpoenaed or requested and so on, the, um, the, they should be alerted. They should be alerted to that fact. If uh, if um, I'm suing you and you're an ISP and I say, okay, I want to have the records from Sade, your assistant, um, you're supposed to tell Sade, hey, 
I'm involved in a lawsuit with Brad and he's requesting your records. So just so you know, that's the general way it's done. But you're right. There is a um, there is a, a understanding out there among a lot of people that that's not always how it's done. And they worry about losing control and so forth. My perspective is if you have to look at the totality, I mean, life is all of life. I mean, let's get philosophical for a minute. All of life is a totality, right? If you focus on any one hour or one day, you might say, oh, this stinks, or it's not worth it. It's not worth it. You have to look at the totality. Look at the week, the month, the year, the past five years, and then say, is that one incident really going to impact things, right? So bringing it to what you're talking about, is the fact that you might have a government intrusion. You might have a delay in services if this thing were to happen. Is that worthwhile? Is that still, nah, I would say, don't worry about it. I would I'd say in the totality of things, it is, it's meaningless. It's not something that you really have to worry about. Um, that's my position. Again, you know, everyone has their own way of looking at things. So, well, so let's, let's go backwards for a second and, and go back to the, you know, the proverbial thing that's happening every day. Um, what should be in your MSA, constitution, customer agreement, you can, whatever label you want to use. Yeah. What should be in there from a high level that really should spell out that number one, I, you know, there's, I can never give you a hundred percent guarantee, right? Like right. nobody's a hundred percent when it comes to the cybersecurity thing doesn't matter how much money you have they seem to find a way right so Agreed. so i'm doing the best that i'm you know you know what's the verbiage is it you know because again you can get really caught up sometimes like best practice but says who uh industry standard says who like what is what is the position that you should be you know taking in your customer agreements to help basically protect yourself from the well you're the msp it doesn't matter what it is it's always your problem yeah I'll tell you, and this issue is, I've seen it crop up more and more over the past year or so. Um, and, and I'm going to begin with what, how you began by saying that you need to make it very clear that nothing is guaranteed, that, you know, not only is 100% security a dream, it's never been achieved, but you can also and should also make it clear that to the extent that you're a reseller of that service, you're not even in control of the degree to which that solution is implemented or not implemented. You are reselling a third-party service. And if something goes wrong with that third-party service, that can't be imputed to you, right? Uh, I hesitate to name any vendor as an example, but I, and so I won't, but let's just say we have a vendor, ABC, that's selling a security solution. And for some reason it fails, or I don't know, it didn't catch something. That's not your fault as an MSP. It can't be your fault. You have nothing to do with it. You're monitoring it. You might help facilitate a workaround if you can, but you don't have control. So the very first thing is nothing is guaranteed. Second thing is, by the way, we're reselling this. So again, it's not on us. Now, that said, that stuff should be in your MSA. And if it isn't, well, then you have, a, you have to amend your MSA and modify it. All right. That's important. I think that there's also an, a, 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 um, a flip side of that coin, which is what do you do? What should you have in place internally to um, mitigate the damage and mitigate the issues that can happen when it, a security incident arises? Because it will arise, right? MSPs are, are 
they're the vectors right now. They are the vector for for their customers. You know, hackers, uh, cyber criminals used to go right to the companies. Now they say, well, I could go to the MSP and instead of going to one company at a time, I could go to the MSP, hack the MSP and get to 50 companies, right? Oh, that's like a payday. So the idea is if and or when that happens, what are you going to do? And if you're sitting here saying, well, I'm not sure, I guess I'd call, um, if that's what you're saying, if, you, if your sentence is, I guess I'd whatever, then you have a problem, okay? So what I'm getting at here is that everybody should have an incident response plan in place, an incident response plan. The time to figure out what you would do if an incident occurred is not when it occurs, right? Because then people are scared, angry, they're worried for their jobs, of course. They're, you know, worried about their money and then, you know, am I going to, uh, is this going to bankrupt me and so on? That's not the time to say, all right, what are you going to do? You need to have a security incident response plan in place because incident response plans are not just for, well, what if somebody hacks in? They're for ransomware too. I mean, they're for any security incident that could occur. Ransomware, malware, a rogue employee takes an ax to a server. I don't know. It, it should cover all of the contingencies. So if the companies don't have that, they need to have that. All right. And, and I'll tell you that um, we have come out with a white paper checklist of security incident plans, um, what you need to have in it and, and the type of language that you should have. So if, um, and we'll, we'll say it again at the end, but if, listeners of this webcast, if they send me an email saying, I heard you on George's, uh, you know, on the MSP initiatives webcast, can you send me that checklist? Be happy to send it on through to you. So it'll give you a checklist. It'll give you advice about what, you know, what to look for, what not to look for from a legal perspective, how to set things up. So just drop me an email and we'll send that to you. Okay. And we'll, that, that email is what? Info at bradleygross.com? Info at bradleygross.com. Awesome. Right. Keep that, keep that handy guys. Cause that's good free advice. Um, and by the way, Brad, Brad doesn't usually give that out for free. Uh, trust me. I, I do nothing to, for free. I have to beg and plead to get him on these, these webcasts. <laughs> um, so, so let me ask you this question. Yeah. Um, let's say the MSP is desperate, right? Let's, okay. let's say they decide to pay their ransom out of their pocket. Mm-hmm. And we all know that there's no guarantee that it'll actually work. Right. I think that's right. like a, Best, best 50-50, right? Well, I don't know about that. You know, I've been involved in a lot of these, both from way back when in a prosecutor's perspective and now representing uh, MSPs, VARs, OEMs, and so forth. I have so far yet to have an, a, a, a case in which the cyber criminal did not actually provide the hash code. Now, really? in truth, yeah, yeah. And, and I'll tell you that in truth, I recently handled a case where the hacker not only provided the hash code, true story, but um, uh, it didn't work initially. So the IT staff, at first it went through me. You know, the IT staff says, tell them it's not working, we need help. And then the cyber criminal, wherever he was, well, try this, try that. And eventually they actually started communicating with themselves to the point where the, the hacker was almost like the technical support. And he walked them through it and it worked. And I'm thinking, well, I guess there is honor among thieves, right? There's honor. They said, if you give us this, this money, we'll, we'll take care of it. And they did. Um, 
So, you know, but again, I think your point is a good one, which is you never know, right? You never know. Um, there is a business aspect to this where cyber criminals know that if they get the reputation of we take your money and we don't help you, no one's going to pay you, right? But at the same time, you're right. You never know. So what do you do about that, right? What, do you, what can you do? I mean, like, you know, usually when these incidents happen, Brad, mm-hmm. you probably end up don't have a customer on the other side of it. I mean, it just that tends to be what happens, right? Right, right, um, right. At the very least, you're trying to not let it get out to a point where it's even worse, right? Like now you're the guy that, you know, in the neighborhood, in the community, well, you had these guys, a guy attacked, you know, I don't know what they're doing, but they couldn't help me. And so, so of course, you know, the MSP might be inclined to just pay out of their pocket. Right. Is there any reason where that could become a problem down the line? Does that admit like, you know, Hey, he paid, he, he knew he was at fault. So he, he tried to no, I, I, you know what? I think that that's just a business decision at that point. And I think that, you know, nobody is going to turn around and say, well, you paid it. Therefore, clearly you were at fault or you did something wrong because otherwise you wouldn't have paid it. It's it's a business decision, right? It's, it's almost always a business decision. And the question is, how do you implement that? The, if you're going to make that decision to pay, and I'm not suggesting you should or should not. I'm just simply saying, if you have made the decision to pay, then I think that there are certain things, and we actually touch upon this in the checklist that I was, that I was talking about to your uh, listeners before. Um, there are things that you should do, right? To mitigate against future allegations of wrongdoing, both from your customers, maybe from law enforcement, right? Uh, for example, for example, <clears throat> Under the OFAC sanctions list, let's go back to that. If you pay ransomware to an entity or a person, and it turns out later that they were on the list, you're guilty. Now you could say, but I didn't know. Right, I understand that. Well, um, there was no indication. We even did IP tracking and so on, and clearly they bounced around servers. We thought they were located in in, in uh, Spain. <laughs> you know, nothing. They're not on the list. Right, but they weren't guilty. So now you say, well, now what do we do? Well, there are mitigating factors. There are always mitigating factors. And, and what I would say is, for example, one, uh, first make sure the hacker that you're dealing with has the ability to reverse what he or she has done. And, in, and at least two different matters, I could tell you that we have asked for and received uh, sample hash uh, uh, code that would unencrypt some of the files, right? So you could say, well, look, I'm going to unencrypt these thousand files. You want the rest of your hundred thousand files? Then pay. Okay, well, he was able to do that, so he could probably do this. That's one strategy to think about too. And these are not in any particular order. Call your insurance company, as you said, because you might have coverage but as you correctly said earlier, a lot of these coverages have procedures that you have to follow. And if you don't follow them, you might find yourself without coverage, right? So that's important too. The third thing I would say is contact law enforcement. Absolutely contact law enforcement. Which, the, the local police department down the street from me? You can do local police uh... if they'll take a report, but generally speaking, since this is uh, interstate, inter country uh, 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 issue, I would contact the FBI 
or the Secret Service, depending on what the industry is. Generally speaking, if it deals with banks, financial institutions, you're talking about the Secret Service. Everything else is the FBI, generally speaking. Um, contact your local FBI field office. They'll take a report. They may look into it. They may not. They may say, look, we filed a report, but in, can't, in truth, there's not a lot we can do for you. Okay, at least you filed a report. At least you showed that you're making um, steps. You're taking steps to involve the authorities. So I would contact the FBI. I would even, in truth, contact OFAC. Now that's a controversial position to take, okay? OFAC says you should contact us. And in fact, it even has a procedure by which you could get a license to deal with people on the OFAC list. It has a procedure, okay? So you'd say, oh, that sounds wonderful. Eh, not so fast. First of all, it takes a while to go through that licensing process. And usually a ransomware issue, you know, has a timeline on it. Like you have to pay us within a week or five days. Otherwise it's gone and you will never hear from us again. You're not getting through the OFAC license approval list that fast. Second, as per OFAC's own um, uh, language, there's a presumption that you're going to be denied. A presumption. And you, you could understand this, right? We presume that you're not allowed to deal with Iran and Iraq and Syria and all these countries that the U.S. has designated as, you know, bad places to deal with, the governments at least. And so there's a presumption it's going to be denied. But I would still probably contact them anyway to show that you made them aware to show that you didn't just willy-nilly say, oh, I'm just going to shell out money. I don't care where they're from. You contacted the FBI, you contacted OFAC, you contacted your insurance company. And, um, you know, you even did things to make sure that the person with whom you're dealing and the person who, who's demanding money is the person who can help you get your stuff back. When you do all these things, you've mitigated your risk down the line. Have you eliminated it? No. But mitigation... That's a good thing. It's a very good thing. So from a protecting your assets standpoint, um, and, and we've all seen it, right? And depending on your insurance policy, which again, there's an insurance policy for you, the provider, right. which is different than the insurance policy that your customer should have, right? Correct. Two different but, things altogether. Right. Like your policy generally, you wouldn't protect your downstream customer, right? Usually- it depends on the policy, right? Some policies do, some policies don't. Some policies protect everybody, first person and third person. Some do not. There's a, si a silent cyber coverage, which is uh, sort of where traditional property and liability coverage meets cyber. And there's um, it's where companies don't get specific about whether cyber is covered or not. And you can argue both ways. Well, it is, well, it isn't. These are the areas that you need a specialist to look at, think about, and argue on your behalf, uh, because there's room in that. There's wiggle room in there if you find yourself in the silent cyber uh, uh, end of things. Have, um, have you ever had to get involved with an insurance carrier because they're saying, nope, we're not covering it? I have not been involved with a, with a carrier that said we're not covering it. I have been brought in by carriers to negotiate and to handle things. But so far, I have not had a carrier say we're not covering it where there were because in general um there's either there's either coverage or there's not or maybe there's this silent cyber issue which is 
not common, but I would say that most MSPs nowadays um, fall into the category of they either are covered because they anticipated this and they were wise and had enough of forethought to uh, do this, or they say, I don't have coverage. I'm telling you, Brad, I don't have coverage at all. There's no way. So now it's just a question of how much can we negotiate with the cyber criminal? And there's negotiations happen. I can tell you, negotiations happen. You know, again, it's not the cyber criminal's intent, at least for the most part, um, to put you out of business and, and to demand an amount that you can't possibly pay. They want to make you go, ooh, you know, just ah, a little bit, but not enough to make you just say, I'm done. That's not in their interest. Very interesting. We got yeah. a few, we got like another 10, 12 ish minutes left. If you guys That's have any questions for Brad, shoot them over in the QA if you're in the live session. I mean, take advantage of the time that we have. So I got I got one that came in from Brent. He says, I'm sure this is a hypothetical. Uh, it is <laughs> is it illegal or merely unethical if your customer's new company returns your gear non-functioning? And when repaired, the admin account was locked out and they did a rip and replace of your software, in this case, the RMN. Wow. Wait, repeat that again, because that's quite a bit. That's uh, a <laughs> start again. So then, is it illegal or merely unethical if your customers new, I assume MSP, IT company, whatever, returns your stuff, your gear, right? Whatever that is, backup gear, routers, firewalls, whatever, non-functioning. Okay. And, when, and when you actually did the time to then restore it, repair it, you find that the admin account was intentionally, it sounds like intentionally, locked out so that you couldn't get in there. And they did a rip and replace of the software on your equipment with their own. And I guess like kabloomed, you know, blew up your stuff. Wow. Yeah. Wow. What an interesting scenario. So you're dealing with a hardware as a service scenario in which you get the hardware back and your customer has done something that makes the hardware almost obsolete or useless to you because they've done some sort of firmware, whatever they've done to uh, make it such that it's, it's a useless piece of equipment. Is that illegal? Well, I don't know if it's necessarily illegal. Um, I would say that it probably exposes your customer to a couple of causes, different causes of action and, and, and claims uh, in that they have damaged your equipment, right? I mean, just at a basic level, you've given them something on lease, loan, or license, and they have returned it to you in non-functioning, uh, um, uh, in a non-functioning state. So right off the bat, they're going to be responsible for the replacement of that. Uh, I think that's a fair um claim to make as far as you know does it um does it uh violate some sort of law about circumventing uh, uh passwords or technology designed to prevent uh, intrusion and all it's a case-by-case -case kind of thing uh just because somebody has hacked through or, or jailbroken something doesn't mean they violated the law necessarily it involves dmca it involves copyright law and so on so um you know i would say that one of the things though that should be in your master agreement okay and now we're going to go back to agreements is the fact that the customer is made aware of the fact that this stuff is on loan, it is licensed, right? And that you're expecting it back. And if they don't return it, then you can 
absolutely charge them for the full replacement value. But if they do return it and it is not functioning, again, replacement value cost is going to be invoiced to them. That should be something in the MSA because you know you might have a customer that said, we didn't intend to do this. We thought it was okay. You just gave us the equipment, but this is what we do. And you know the equipment's still yours. It's still yours. And you don't want to get into that battle. So you want to clarify these things. That's a reality that you need to uh, accommodate in your MSA, for sure. For sure. Let me give you a scenario, Brad. The mm-hmm. BYOD, right? And, and even now today, it's even more t- um, something that you have to be tactical about, I guess, is the way I would say it, right? Good way of putting it. Um, so one, you know, the, hey, if the, if the employee or the, if you're an MSC, you're supporting a company and their employees are using their own personal equipment to access corporate resources rather than the company is providing them a corporate device, which really flips the whole thing around, right? From a legality. Mm-hmm. Sure. Like, and then you're instructed, hey, hook them up to our system, uh, but you need to make sure it's safe and secure. And you're like, well, in order for me to do that, I got to start installing stuff on this person's device. There's a privacy potential concern here. Right. Like, is there an agreement between you and your employee that, you know, states this, right? Because I'm now being asked to do something where I could be in a potential jam if this person claims that their privacy is a problem, right? How do you, yeah. how do you really address that? So you address that. That's another reality that needs to be addressed in your MSA, that uh, access is not just simply access to the corporate environment, to the managed environment. It might actually include devices that are periodically attached to the network and then removed, right? That you have the right to scan these uh, uh, the, these these devices. You have the right to, you know, do what you need to do to maybe even isolate them from the network if that's what you're going to do. And, you know, BYOD is a very significant issue, especially in the area of security, because you don't know what people are plugging in and what they're, and so on. And the problem is, is that MSPs are in this sort of rock in a hard place. If they lock down the network such that other devices can't be plugged in or recognized, then the customer complains, oh, you've made this so tight that we can't operate. I can't can't put a flash drive in, right? I can't copy my kid's resume from my computer to a flash drive. Well, all right, on the flip side, you want to make sure that nobody is doing things that jeopardize the security or integrity of the network. So MSA, that's where you're going to put it. You're going to talk about access to the network. You're going to talk about isolating devices. You're going to talk about privacy and that to the extent that something is plugged into the network, the customer okay, is warranting and representing that you are allowed that you are allowed to scan that device, that you may see things on that device and that that's part of the process. Now, might you still be accused of someone down the line saying you weren't allowed to do that? Yeah, maybe, but you at least have a, a leg to stand on. You have some solid ground to say you are part of an overall managed environment. We have the right to access that environment. We actually specifically talk about BYOD and say things that are periodically connected, we may scan. And that's the way it is, you know? Sure. That may be, but that may be in writing between you and the check signer, but the actual downstream employee may not have any visibility to that agreement. True. You're right. And that's part of the issue. And that's part of the um, uh, dilemma that MSPs face. I could tell you that so far, for the few times that those, that issue has come up, 
we have been able to deflect and reflect it back to the um, uh, uh, to the MSP and say, talk to your uh, not the MSP to the uh, end to the customer of the MSP. Talk to this company. Talk to them. They're the ones that set this up, and so on. And we haven't heard. But I guess you're right. You know, you're pointing out that what if what if the moons align and this happens and that. Yeah, it's one of the issues that you're going to have to face. And I think that clear communication is the way to accommodate that. That's really going to be the solution. Communication. Would you say that you're, you know, and this and this happens all the time. Your customers like, do you have anything that you can give me that I can hand out as a template or some sort of form that I can edit for our own purposes to present to my downstream customer? Right. I mean, to let them know. I'm not, but I'm not a lawyer, Brad. I mean, should right. I have to call you? <laughs> Right. Well, in truth, you know, it's a question of managing expectations. Okay. That's really what it is. It's a question of managing expectations. So you're saying the customer, the MSP's customer might say, is there anything that we can give to our customers, our clients to let them know of this situation? Or their employees. Or their employees. And the answer is, yeah, let them know. I mean, literally there's no magic. There's no rocket science to this. If this is an issue, and if privacy and things might be accessed, then you really need to say to your, you know, downstream, whoever the downstream client is, the ultimate beneficiary, you need to remind them of what's going on. Communication. That's why I said earlier, communication is the key. You can't just sit back and say, I'm going to provide this service. By the way, uh, BYOD, if you plug things in, we have the right to scan it. Thank you. Yeah, you've protected yourself maybe legally, but you're not managing expectations and you're going to find yourself in constant arguments about, well, we had the right to do it, but should you have done it? Shouldn't we have told our people? What do you recommend? Just tell your customers to educate their employees. Education, communication will avoid these issues. 100%. Brent says, I hang my head in shame. (laughs) I have not had you update our MSA. Well, it sounds like Brent, you need to get back in touch with Brad and he'll, he'll hook you up. Um, so there's that. Um, Brad, w- let's tell everybody one more time. Um, sure. the cybersecurity incident response checklist is, I don't know if I'm saying right. that correctly. Um, where, where should they send you a message in order to get a copy of, you know, no, no obligation. He's not asking you to sign anything. Pay right, for anything. Of course give you you know some tips right where, where should they send that to info at bradleygross.com mention that you know we you were part of this uh, uh this presentation and we will respond back to you like george said there's no um obligation it's free uh but you know we like to keep track of who's asking for this stuff so because it's it's important it's important stuff and you know we like to know that we have told people and spread the word. Um, so send an email to info at bradleygross.com. We'll pop it right back to you in the next day or so. And from there, you know, uh, you'll laugh, you'll cry. Hopefully you'll make the right decisions after that. And uh, we'll see where things go from there. Right. I'm, and I'm sure over time that gets updated. So probably doesn't of hurt course. To be in touch, right? Uh, so never hurts. This whole session was recorded as well as we've had four or five sessions with Brad before that were all just as interesting as this one. Go back and watch them. There's tips that we don't cover in every single one because we talk about different topics. So uh, you go to mspinitiative.com under sessions. Every session we've ever done since March of 2020 is there. You can search for Brad. All of his sessions will pop up that we've done with him. Uh, Brad also has a podcast called the Bradcast. That's right, the technology Bradcast. Yes. Yeah. Technologybroadcast.com. 
Okay. So you should probably hook up, hook up and listen. Cause you know, Brad obviously has, you know, his own people on there and talks about stuff that you're probably going to run into. And I, I listened to that one too. There's an interview with you on there too. That's right. I think a year ago or so. Right. Yeah. We talk and about I think it's called when, when George Bardisi speaks, you should listen. I think that's the title of it, right? Something like so, that. You, you may not like what you have to hear, right? Depending on who you are. <laughs> so you'll definitely get good information there. So mm-hmm. don't forget to go back technologybroadcast.com, msbinitiative.com under sessions. You'll see this one posted there later on today. On there is also our monthly MSP giveaway and the Channel Strong Tour coming to the Northeast at the end of July. So a couple of weeks from now. So if you happen to be anywhere between Virginia, Boston, or in between, uh, definitely join us because we're coming to your backyard. Brad, once again, appreciate you for putting the cape on once more. Absolutely. Coming on board and talking to us. Anytime, and, George. Uh, I'm sure we'll have you back on yet another interesting topic that pops up. Sounds good to me. Take All care. Right. Take it easy, guys.